um, imposter syndrome. And ultimately to me, I uh, would define it as this experience, this feeling, and these thoughts that despite your whatever external successes that you've been having, despite whatever achievements that you've accomplished, that you internally feel not good enough, like you don't deserve it, like you're a fraud, that people are gonna find out at some point, and um, everyone will know that you're a big phony. And this is something that I talk with lawyers about probably on a daily basis. It probably comes up in one capacity or another in almost every single group that I run, in every single assessment individual session. It's so commonly experienced, right. and there really doesn't seem to be any um, groups of lawyers that don't experience it. Our goal in creating Finding New Waters is to provide a resource for families to help navigate the complexities of supporting a loved one struggling with substance use or mental health. When we find ourselves in crisis due to one of these issues, most people have no idea where to turn. We hope to shed some light onto what is often the darkest hour for many families. Nikki Ellington has been the Eastern Clinical Coordinator with the Lawyer Assistance Program since 2014. She is duly licensed mental health and addictions therapist and has been practicing in the mental health field for the past 17 years. Ms. Ellington worked in a wide variety of outpatient settings with particular experience treating professionals and special forces services, members through her employment with the United States Army. Ms. Ellington provides a confidential mental health service to any judge, lawyer, or law student in the eastern half of the state, which encompasses High Point to the Outer Banks. Nikki Ellington, thank you for joining us here on Finding New Waters. It's Thanks so great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Great. So I think it's always helpful for our listeners to know more about you. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of work you're doing with the LAP? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, I've been in the mental health field for the last 17 years and um, have had a lot of really good experiences, mostly in outpatient treatment. I've um, been able to do a lot of addictions work throughout my career, um, mental health as well. Mm -hmm. And at the Lawyer's Assistance Program, I've been here for eight years, and we provide free and confidential, I'll say it twice, confidential <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> mental health support to any lawyer in the state. And um, my job is awesome. I love my job. Um, I love working with the attorneys and the professionals. And I feel really grateful to be able to provide a safe space for lawyers to get the help that they need. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So what does that look like? Can you tell us a little bit? Like, you know, if a, if a lawyer is, is struggling, like how does, that, how does that process work? Yeah, so most of the attorneys that I work with are self-referred. So they've heard about us. Our program's actually been around since the 70s. And it started, it started originally out of Alcoholics Anonymous with mm -hmm. one uh, – 12 stepping one lawyer 12 stepping another mm -hmm. um, when in need and then over the years it's morphed into this much larger entity we have licensed staff now and we are able to provide services really for all types of mental health issues 
So most of the time now, the attorneys have just heard about us, seen us at different continuing education programs, seen us at the law schools, and um, are able to come in and say, hey, I'm dealing with something I would like a little extra help. So that is the majority of the folks that I see. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So I got to tell you, I, I had the the honor uh, to speak at the LEP conference in the fall in Asheville. And frankly, I was terrified <laughs> going into that experience. I was thinking I'm going to be standing up talking about new material in front of a group of lawyers. And as a doctor, I've been trained to fear lawyers intensely. <laughs> okay, And um, I could not have been more wrong. It, the group there was so friendly, so energetic, like so down to earth. Um, and we just had a great time together. I, I loved it. And I was shocked at how inviting and fun the people in the room were, um, which to me is so like the opposite of what I would expect uh, being a professional thinking, you know, if I if I have a substance use disorder, the the medical board is going to make my life very challenging. I am I would be terrified of referring myself to the board. And and but here I'm looking at you and you seem so friendly and open and inviting and I just feel so confused. <laughs> right. So like how do you talk to people about the process of making contact with LAP cuz for me, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. I, I I mean, honestly, I do have to convince people and tell them many times that we are confidential, which is cool. I'm glad to do that. Mm. Um, but we truly, truly are. We are not the secret police waiting for you in the wings, trying to get you. Um, although our program is funded through the state bar, we are separate and private. Wow. So anybody that works so and the state bar is the licensing body for attorneys. Right. So any attorney that works with me, their name, anything that we talk about, it's all completely private and confidential, does not get reported back to the state bar at all. So, and even, you know, there are rare exceptions where we may have a lawyer that is involved with some sort of disciplinary action. Um, and even in those cases, I don't even like to use the word mandated because ultimately mm -hmm. they still have to agree. Mm -hmm. They still have to agree to work with us and agree to allow me to communicate back to the state bar the basics of their compliance with our program. But okay. that's very few and far between. I see, I mean, on average, I would say I probably see two to three new lawyers each week. And out of all those attorneys, I probably, like right now, I probably only have four that are dealing with some sort of disciplinary action oh, well. um, that's directly related to their mental health. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, majority are self-referred. Wow. And um, I think, my observation as an outsider looking in has been the LAP has done a good job over the years of trying to really reinstate that we are confidential and reinforce that for the attorneys in the community. So hopefully they can trust us. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge resource. Yeah, it is. To yeah. have, have elite mental health professionals there for you to support your profession and your career. And it's confidential. Yep. That's a huge blessing. Yeah. Well, and the other benefit, like you got to see our conference and a lot of the all, almost all of the attorneys there are folks that have been working with us for a long period of time, mm -hmm. anywhere 
two plus years. Mm -hmm. So we also have this wonderful network of lawyers who are trying to lead healthy lives, awesome. which yeah. is so yeah. cool yeah. that we can provide that space, safe space for another attorney to like raise their hand and say, you know, I could use a little extra help. And we're able to provide that hope that like, yeah, you can get some extra help and your life can get better. And mm -hmm. doesn't mean that life's always going to be perfect, but we've got a support system to help you through it. Mm -hmm. And a group of your peers to show you that it's safe and that it's okay to not have to act like you have your stuff together all the time. Yeah. Uh, so Nikki, I know one thing that's been, uh, one thing that you've wanted to talk about today is the uh, imposter syndrome. I know you've been kind of uh, passionate about that. There's been some some talking that you've done recently about that. So maybe maybe share a little bit with us about what's on your mind. Yeah, I'm, this has been something that I feel like lawyers and professionals generally have dealt with, you know, for a, maybe forever, for a really long time. But then oh, now that more people are talking about it, we've got this nice catchy name for it right. now. Um, imposter syndrome. And ultimately to me, I, uh, would define it as this experience, this feeling, and these thoughts that despite your, whatever external successes that you've been having, despite whatever achievements that you've accomplished, that you internally feel not good enough, like you don't deserve it. Like you're a fraud that people are going to find out at some point and um, everyone will know that you're a big phony. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I talk with lawyers about probably on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It probably comes up in one capacity or another in almost every single group that I run, in every single assessment individual session. It's so commonly experienced. Right. And there really doesn't seem to be any... Um, groups of lawyers that don't experience it really? um at some point i mean i, I wouldn't say that everyone does right. but um even the people that on the outside look the most successful the super lawyers hmm. like even them are having these same feelings of insecurity and anxiety about their performance and their worth um so it can be really paralyzing hmm. so i think at lap um this has come up so frequently also because they're able to say I'm having these feelings and everyone else in the room is just nodding their head like, yep, mm. me too. I get it. Like we've all been there. We get it. And we're able to kind of share how can we deal with that and bounce ideas off one another about what's worked for them. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. When, when I saw your interest in imposter syndrome, I was actually surprised because I was thinking, you know, imposter syndrome is something I hear more about like an Instagram, like TikTok, like, just kind of popular media platforms and usually talking to people who are like college, young adult, like early career. Um, and so the, the idea of the imposter syndrome comes up a lot in your work, working with lawyers who are early in the recovery. I was like, what's the connection mm -hmm. between alcohol, substances, process addiction, and imposter syndrome? You know, I don't know that the connection is with addiction. Honestly, I, okay. I, I across the board, I see this with individuals that are dealing with depression, anxiety, trauma, um, substance use. I mean, sure. really anything under the sun and then stress. Um, I've re I've thought a lot about it and I feel like for attorneys and professionals in general, they are dealing with a different kind of stress. And although mm. I feel like a lot of jobs are stressful there's a particular 
personality and you know not not all lawyers are the same sure. but there's been enough patterns of personalities that I've observed that I think is drawn to the law mm. so perfectionism being an overachiever being a type a person mm. a lot of lawyers tend to fall in that category when they enter law school they're kind of mixed with all the other folks that are right. in that same category and my you know I went to school to be a therapist, which is a totally different experience right. than going to law school. Right. We're all about the feelings, <laughs> you know, and they're like, no feelings, just logic. Uh, but at law, in law school, I, they, the way that the teaching style there, I think also doesn't set them up for a lot of success with mm. the competition, um, dealing mm. with competition. It can be, feel for a lot of people very competitive. It can feel very, um, shaming if you don't know the answers if you don't get things right now i think my observation has been that i think law schools are trying to shift away from that model okay. um and i've got hope around that but mm -hmm. it's been a long time that they've been functioning in that framework yeah. mm -hmm. um so it takes a long time for change to happen absolutely so i think we kind of combine those two together and it's this recipe for disaster when they enter the yeah. practice of law of just this, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know, you know, and I've heard a lot of lawyers say that in law school, they teach you how to think like a lawyer. They don't teach you how to be a lawyer. Mm, interesting. So then they enter this world where it's a whole new experience. And for a lot of folks that are overachievers and are perfectionists, they've not mm. really had the experience of failing. Um, they've not really had that happen. So when they right. enter law and they're like, I don't know how to do calendar call. I don't know how to write this brief or whatever. I, I'm not good with the examples all the time, sure. but um, the law examples, but you know, that can really throw them. It can really throw them for a loop. And that yeah. sense of insecurity seems to mm -hmm. persist. Yeah. Um, it, and it can be addressed and dealt with. I don't know that I've seen it ever fully, go away completely but it becomes way more manageable mm -hmm. with treatment with talking about it with practicing alternative coping mechanisms for mm -hmm. dealing with it yeah. so hopefully that describes mm -hmm. it a little bit yeah. and my hunch about it was uh imposter syndrome me being a recovering person from imposter syndrome it is so painful to live with it right it it's it's work is stressful enough and managing imposter syndrome on top of work just makes things unmanageable. Yep. It's so stressful. And I know that where, where there's pain, uh, there's self-medication, right? And so um, the imposter syndrome, like a, a stressful day of feeling like you don't belong at work, you don't belong in your practice, you don't belong with your partners, great time to go and have a drink. Yep. Mm -hmm. That is for sure. Yeah. That is for sure. And it's this like self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like I feel like a fraud, so I certainly can't let anybody know I'm a fraud. So I have to like overachieve and overcompensate right. mm -hmm. and work extra. So everyone knows that I'm here and I'm doing a good job um, right. and do all this, adding more and more and more and more to the plate. But then having that relief, you know, substances are the Perfect way. Right. Perfect way. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's to... fast. It's predictable. Right. Exactly. It's on demand. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's going to give me that kind of numb out, mm -hmm. avoidant, relaxed state right. that yeah. a lot of people are looking for that escape. 
the escapism for sure. But the irony is then you, when you are so encumbered by alcohol, then, then you really don't belong. Yes. In the practice. Like you really don't belong with holding the responsibility of, of a huge legal question. Mm. Right. Yes. It, yes. Um, I think it takes them a long time. A lot of lawyers takes them a long time to get to that point where they are able to recognize that. Mm -hmm. I think the denial system is, I mean, it's strong for a lot, most addicts and alcoholics, of course, Mm -hmm. but the rationalizations for lawyers, I, my observation has been really embedded in not just their personality, but also the culture of practicing Mm -hmm. law, Mm -hmm. you know, Alcohol use in particular is very integrated into the practice where, you know, you're taking clients out. And I think it's often um, shown as a way to deal with stress. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, I've had a hard day. I'm going to go get a drink. You know, that's so we're kind of like laying that in cement when we're newly in the field Mm -hmm. that this is how we deal with stress or it's a way a lot of people deal with stress. Mm -hmm. And that then, so then how do you know if you're going to be the person that can leave it there and have the one drink or if over time you're not able to do that anymore? Right. 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 So I think the other piece is that for lawyers and alcohol use in particular, it's this big secret because they don't want others to know like how bad it is. And they're able to rationalize like, well, I only drink after five. I mean, Mm -hmm. I only drink when I get all my obligations done and then I'll drink or I still pay all my bills. So like that should be Mm -hmm. fine. I go to all my kids sports games. Mm -hmm. That's fine. You know, I don't drink in the morning. I'm not like that. Right. Um, so it's this concept too of like, am I really, I'm not like that. I'm not Mm -hmm. that bad. I don't need to do all that, you know? Right. And that's not how it looks for most lawyers. Most lawyers do not end up being the guy under a bridge. Right. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when I see the real um, serious external negative consequences from substance use, Mm -hmm. they're usually so far down the rabbit hole of addiction that their whole life is a complete Hmm. mess. Um, So I think we're doing better about being able to address that sooner so that we're not on fire when we're going to get help. Um, But it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be able to challenge those denial, that denial system. Yeah. I'm always super interested in what makes someone change. Like what brings that person to the point of saying, today is the day I'm going to call LAP. Mm. Like whereas like maybe the last 300, 700 days of their life was the day that they could have called LAP. So why is it on day like 800 of the opportunity that today is today? Yeah. So I'm curious, like in your experience, like what are, what are the things going on in like the days and weeks leading up to that moment that people self-refer? Yep. You know, and that's almost always the first question I ask people is like, what's been going on in your life most recently that made you want to reach out now? Mm-hmm. And usually it's a lot of pain and suffering. It's okay. like they've reached this point where it's like, okay, I know that I cannot fix this on my own now and I need some help. But with lawyers, you know, that's um, can take a long time for them to recognize that they are in a helping profession. They are 
the fixers, the problem solvers. They're mm. the people that all their clients are going to to fix their lives. They're mm. in their personal lives. Their family usually goes to them to help them with their problems. So yeah. to be able to say, not only that I cannot fix my problems because I for myself because I've tried to do that and I keep ending up in the same place, if not worse. Mm. I also need to ask someone for help to do that. It takes a lot for them to get to that point. So a lot of pain and suffering. Another thing that I've seen help a lot, a lot of our volunteers, the folks that you got to meet at our conference, are so brave and willing to sacrifice their own anonymity and confidentiality to help others. So we have a great group of folks that are willing to get up and share their stories um, to other lawyers. And every single time one of our lawyers does that, we get at least one phone call from someone in the audience that Mm. says, I heard this person and that's me and Mm. I can relate to that. And it, you helped him so, or her. So I'm hopeful that you can help me too. Yeah. It's powerful. That's powerful. Absolutely. What about specifically with the, the imposter syndrome? I know you talked about maybe people don't necessarily, you know, kind of fully get over it or whatever, but what do you feel or what have you seen like in your practice and working with the attorneys that uh, helps them kind of shift or, or move through that? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is being able to recognize it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times we have this inner critic that is telling us that we're not good enough. Mm. And I think in the very early stages of it, folks don't even really realize that it's not real, that it's not based in reality. Right. You know, they think, no, really, I'm not good enough. <laughs> like, no, right. that's a fact. And when they're able to slowly let people in to see that side of them, then others are usually able to kind of question like, well, wait, didn't you tell me that you've, you know, you have had all these successes, you did get into law school. You, there's a certain bar you have to meet to get into law school. They let you in. One of my coworkers, Candace, I'll steal one of her stories. Um, she shares about experiencing imposter syndrome on our, we have a podcast as well. Oh, cool. And um, she told the story about how when she went to law school and she told this professor, you know, I really don't think I'm supposed to be here. I feel like, you know, like mm. you guys definitely probably messed up in getting accepting me in here and, and the professor's like okay so you think not only that you know better than us who accepted you in the first place but that you're so smart that you tricked us all right. she's like mm, okay right. she tells the story way better of course but i mean to me that's like the perfect example yeah. of what that feels like so when you're able to recognize i think so awareness i think is the first step okay being able to notice like, okay, this inner critic is happening. Can I evaluate if it's based in facts? Mm. Then being able to say, all right, I feel like um, I've made a mistake or or I've had a failure, a bad experience. Is that based in facts? So I'll give another example of that where I had a lawyer contact me that um, I'd been working with for a while. And the attorney said, called me one day and said, I just lost my case. I'm a horrible lawyer. Mm. I should just quit. I should never do this again. Mm. I'm clearly not meant to practice law. I just need to leave. And, you know, eventually if I keep going, I'm probably just going to get disbarred anyways. I'm like, wow. okay, <laughs> like let's slow down. Tell me what happened. So you lost your case. 
okay, well, it seems to me, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me there's always a winner or loser in these things. Did you make, from you, from what you can tell, did you make any major mistakes? Was there anything that happened that went terribly wrong that you did? Right. The attorney's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, so it seems to me like you tried your best, you did your best. We haven't noticed any major mistakes. There's a winner and a loser. Mm-hmm. You were the loser this time, and that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. And that. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's because you did something wrong. Right, right. It could be a variety of reasons that caused you to not win this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean anything about your worth or, or your skill as a lawyer. So being able to kind of have that awareness and then being able to evaluate the facts is, I think, the next step. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the times, like for this attorney, they really weren't able to evaluate the facts for themselves, mm-hmm. so they had to, like, phone a friend. They phoned me. <laughs> um, and we have a whole, you know, all of our volunteers do that for each other, where they're able to say in a group or or call a friend or call one of um, our mentors and kind of talk through, this is what happened, this is how I feel, I feel like, I've messed up. I feel like I'm not good enough. And somebody else can then reflect back, you know, the facts, what's Mm -hmm. based in reality. And I think the more that you practice that, the easier it gets over time, the faster you're able to move through it. I think in the beginning, a lot of the times it can really stick with you. It can ruin your mood for your whole day, Mm -hmm. maybe longer. And it just lingers. Um, And you're able to really move through it faster and kind of be able to practice letting it go. And the other thing that um, a lot of our lawyers have been doing that I find to be very effective is practicing mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. So being able to, especially when like to plan ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you know you've got something really difficult on your calendar coming up or something really challenging for you, planning in your day, I'm going to take the five minutes after this concludes in the five minutes, maybe even the five minutes before, five minutes after, just to practice some mindfulness, practice just sitting with my thoughts and letting the feelings wash over me and not mm. attach them and practice mm-hmm. letting it go, that can be very effective. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of mindfulness and meditation. I know Dr. Hong is Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. That's, that's always refreshing to hear that yeah. where that helps, right? Yeah. yeah. It's so shocking to how we're as humans so easily disconnected from reality. Mm. Like it sounds absurd, but it's so true, right? Like we can get into our minds that all of these things are definitely going to happen. And we can get into our minds that like, I am definitely not the right person uh, or I'm definitely not equipped for this, this task at hand. And then a minute of reconnecting intentionally with reality it's like, oh, like I, I used to think all these things, but now I, I, I think these things. And, mm-hmm. and this is more functional, more realistic, and I, and I feel more confident. And this is more realistic than this scary version of reality. Yeah. But for some reason, some of us are so much more inclined to go this way than this way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Like, what, what's your hunch about, like, lawyers and, like, You've worked with like tier one special forces people in your background. Like I know this is a really common thing across the spectrum. So like mm-hmm. what is it about like high expectations, high talent, high high drive people that gets them disconnected from reality? Yeah. I mean, I think 
part of it, it's, I always feel like it's both nature and nurture. Sure. Mm-hmm. So for me, I often feel like there probably is some stuff in family of origin mm-hmm. that contributes to the wiring of our brain that uh, leads to us being maybe a little bit more anxious, um, a little bit more um, inclined to want to detach from reality to mm-hmm. avoid. Sure. Uh, so I think that's definitely a contributing factor is that maybe we weren't set up for success completely from our family of origin and that sticks with us. You know, mm-hmm. that's especially when it's happening in our early childhood, it's like laying it in cement in our brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to really figure out ways to rewire that as we get older. Yeah. I think the other factor is personality. Um, I think person, those personality traits, some of them are just a part of us. Uh, like, having um the desire to want to do things right the first time i remember um i have a 10 year old son and when he first started school i remember him sitting at the table and doing some school project and instantly getting frustrated because he couldn't do it perfectly the first time and crumpling up the paper and throwing it across the room and i was like oh my god like what is happening (laughs) but you know how to me that was the perfect example of how this is a part of who he is i don't think any we made him that way um it was just kind of there but being able anyway so um i think that's the other piece this also the self-efficacy this belief that you can be successful and can do things some people have a greater amount of self-efficacy naturally than Mm -hmm. others true um so being able to kind of recognize that i think anyways i think that's a contributing factor to why someone might be in that yeah those desires does it affect Mm -hmm. how they relate to their their spouses their partners their kids or is it just uh, a major issue at work? I mean, I don't know that it could be that isolated and siloed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It bleeds into all areas of our life. And the more, the longer it, go, it goes untreated, whether it be our substance use, our anxiety, our depression, imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. whatever, stress, it's inevitable that it's going to bleed into other areas of our life and become worse over time. Mm-hmm. Without treatment, we, you know, doing nothing about it is not going to lead to just miraculous, spontaneous change most right. of the time. Yeah. Right. Or not in my life, anyways. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So, yeah, I think it does affect their relationships. And that might also be part of the denial system that keeps them sick longer. Mm-hmm. Is like, well, my kid, you know, yeah, I drink after my kid goes to bed, or um, you know, yeah, yeah sure, I'm at work until nine every night, but yeah. that can't have an yeah. impact on my family. They, mm-hmm. you know, they know I love them, and it's like, well, yeah, they do to some degree, and this also does have an impact impact on others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I was just thinking about a family of like an, like, like, uh, an upper, like an affluent well-to-do family. Um, the, the parent that's a lawyer has a drinking problem and how, like how terrifying it would be to call, name it a problem. Yeah. Because what, what will the neighborhood think? What will the, the partners at the firm think? Uh, what happens to all these memberships that mm. they prize? Yep. Like, 
And I could see that. What, what is? How do you navigate that with the family? Absolutely. I think that is a huge barrier to lawyers getting help. Mm. I think their um, fear that other people are going to know that I have a problem that I cannot fix for myself right. and, and that I'm going to need extra help around. Or you know, I think that's a huge challenge for them to process and work through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I the one one benefit of being able to come to lap is that we are we're all like they're all in there together yeah. and they're they've all kind of lived through that experience of having to kind of say yeah it is hard for people to know and a lot of it is, too is like that's your disease of alcoholism keeping you sick yeah that ultimately no most people that don't have a drinking problem don't care. They don't care. <laughs> they they really don't. They're not thinking about you right. <laughs> like that extensively yep. most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're not w- watching you at the business meeting to see if you're consuming alcohol. Mm-hmm. And what I always remind people too is if someone does tend to comment or give you a hard time about not drinking, it's usually probably because they have a drinking problem themselves. <laughs> you know, you're the mirror. Like, um, So it's being able to talk about it, I think it helps. Being when we are able to name it, when we're able to say it, it gives it less power. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. we're able to do that in a safe place, like lap, like here at New Waters, then mm-hmm. we're able to really move through it and um, get the help that we need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could imagine how disarming that can potentially be for somebody if they're, you know, holding on so uh, so tightly, so rigid about like this belief about their self and not needing, not wanting to let this out. But then, like you said, being able to come into a group where it's like, Oh, we're all the same. We're all dealing with the same stuff. Yeah. mm -hmm. And with substance abuse in particular, I think a lot of the lawyers, they really feel like they're doing a good job hiding it, Mm. but they're really not. You know, Uh Um, people know, Yeah, people know already to some degree, they probably do have an idea. And and I, try to help them to see like wouldn't you much rather people know you as the a healthy version Mm. of you than a person Mm. who's sick than a person who's smelling like alcohol in the elevator at the courthouse Mm. than the person that you know is sneaking out to get beers at lunch Mm -hmm. versus someone like that's going to therapy and getting help like i'd much rather someone know me like that yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah i think that's one of the things about imposter syndrome is like the only thing worse than feeling like you don't belong is other people seeing that you don't belong mm-hmm. uh, or other people believing that. But all of this is just in our own thinking, right? Yep. Just like you're saying, like people don't think like that. Like they're, they're really not. And they, they would much rather have you whole and healthy mm-hmm. and recovered than struggling and slowly burning yourself out. As you're trying to juggle all of these problems simultaneously. And convincing them of that, especially when I'm dealing with an attorney that I believe could really benefit from going to inpatient treatment, Mm -hmm. that can be a big barrier where they um, have a lot of reasons why they should not go. A lot of them are valid. They do have important cases. They do work a lot. They they will be missed to some degree if they take the time off to get the care that they need. And I probably send 
myself and I have a counterpart, Kathy, that works at the Charlotte office, but I would say I probably send between 10 and 20 attorneys each year to treatment, to inpatient oh, wow. treatment. Life goes on. Yeah. Life goes on. The mm. firm goes on. And we have options to help you through that, especially a lot of solo practitioners, folks that are in their own firm with no administrative help really get stuck in that mm -hmm. mindset that I cannot take this time off. Right. And there are some real challenging situations that would make it difficult. And we will do our very best at lab to support you, to brainstorm ways that we can support you to help you to get the help that you need versus staying stuck because you feel like you can't go because you can't financially afford it because you can't take the time off because you can't not collect a new business. Mm -hmm. For the folks that do take that healthy risk and go get the help they need, I've never seen them look back and say, my life is worse now. Mm. Never. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, especially in this, a thought that just came up while you were talking is the, um, especially like the imposter syndrome piece. Like, I wonder how much like just desensitization maybe helps with that. Like, for example, like, um, you know, I can't let these people know that I'm not good enough. So I have to overcompensate, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then what if they leaned into, you know, what if I just ask for help, right? Or what if I do actually take time to focus on my mental health or, physical health and things like that. So I wonder seeing those individuals, those attorneys that do recover, do turn their lives around. Do you find kind of a, like an over or a, a portion or overwhelming part of those people, like be able to kind of handle that stuff better? For sure. Yeah. I think ask, my opinion is that asking for help is a skill. Absolutely. That is a mm -hmm. skill that mm -hmm. not everybody knows. Yes. And especially within the practice of law. And I could imagine in lots of other types mm -hmm. of professions, it's not really ingrained in the culture of right. that pra of practicing law to ask for help. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a skill that has to be learned. And I think the lawyers that go to treatment, that get help, that that participate in support groups, they are learning that. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. Sure. And another benefit of being amongst your peers is there's some accountability there that somebody else can say, well, have, did you think about asking for help in that situation? And mm. then you're able to say, oh, <laughs> no, mm -hmm. I really wanted to buckle down and do it myself. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so you have other people that can reflect back that maybe remind that yeah. maybe this would be a good time to try, you know, getting back on that horse of asking for help and using healthy coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great. That's good stuff. Yeah. We all need a little accountability and support. <laughs> For sure. <Yeah. laughs> um, sometimes our family members or our, our partners see it way before we do. Uh, can they reach out to LAP yes. anonymously or say, like, I have mm -hmm. a friend? Uh, if you've ever had one of those situations, can you tell us about a story about how that worked out? Yeah, for sure. And um Family members, spouses, even other attorneys will call us. Uh, that whole uh, conversation can be confidential. Okay. And I'm able to kind of process with them what's the best avenue to handle it. Mm -hmm. So I can think of, I have several examples where that has happened. But I can think of one in particular where a wife called about her husband that was um, suffering from alcoholism mm -hmm. 
and really entrenched in it and and really was scaring her um it was a pretty scary situation Mm -hmm. not for her physical safety but for his own health and um Mm -hmm. she was afraid he was gonna die yeah and she was able to call and we were able to help stage an intervention for this attorney to go to treatment and thankfully he did and we were able to kind of help her through the process of navigating Getting into treatment, that in itself can be a really difficult thing to navigate. Being able to know where do I even go? Who do Mm -hmm. I call? Right. What about my insurance? (laughs) Who's going to pay for that? You know, so uh, we're able to, we are kind of, Kathy and I, the two clinicians at LAP, are kind of the boots on the ground within the treatment industry to Mm -hmm. give guidance about like, this might be a great place for your significant other based on what you're telling me about him. And mm-hmm. we're also able to provide some extra support to the spouse that what we can do when we're living with someone that's in active addiction, because unfortunately, they're not always going to be ready when you want them. Right. Probably rarely are yeah, ready when sure. you'd like them to be ready. Absolutely. So we're able to kind of help them process that as well by pro- you know us providing support, but also providing resources mm-hmm. to this significant other. Other lawyers will have reason to call sometimes too when they're concerned about a colleague Mm -hmm. and we're also able to provide intervention confidentially and in a safe way we're able to keep the referral source completely private we do not report to anyone about who has called about the lawyer that they're worried about um lawyers get in trouble sometimes too and people tend to know when that happens. Mm. So we're able to kind of say, offer a hand. That's how I would put it. Mm. Yeah, We can't force anyone to do anything. Uh, we're the carrot, not the stick. <laughs> so we're able to kind of say, hey, we've heard you're having a hard time, whether it be m- myself or one of our lawyer volunteers that um, fall under the same confidentiality policy that I do at LAP. Okay. They're able to kind of reach out and say, hey, we have heard you're struggling and we're here to help if you'd like it. Mm. And, you know, they may not always want to take us up on that in yeah. that moment, but I will say majority of them do come around at some point. Wow. They usually keep mm. that phone number. That's awesome. And if down the road when they become a little more ready or have experienced, unfortunately, maybe a little more pain and suffering, mm, sure. then they pick up the phone and call. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking about that that family that you you helped, like the, the wife that called. I mean, it's you literally saved a life by setting in motion – this intervention because the way that this person is going, it really ends one way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I, I am very grateful to be a small piece and I really look at it as a small piece because the attorney is the one that has to do all the hard work yeah. and heavy lifting. We're just kind of leading the horse to water. Mm-hmm. I can't make any of them drink, mm. but we can show them the way we can show them the light. We can show them that there's hope and that it gets better and it really, really does. It gets better. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, as you guys are well aware, it's not this linear path upwards. There's sure. bumps along the way. And that's another piece of our program is that there's no time limit. We work with people indefinitely. So even those folks that were at our conference, folks that I, I've known for eight years that have been involved with LAP for 30 years are still going to experience life. Mm-hmm. And have right. bumps along the way, and we are always there to support them through it, no matter what's going on. Yeah, because we all need that 
love and compassion. Mm-hmm. We do. <laughs> we do. We a lot of us are raised to not know that. A lot of us are yeah. raised to think you study hard, you work hard, you pay your bills, and that's all you need. Yeah. No excuses. Right. <laughs> but there's so much more yeah. to it than that. Yep. And life becomes so much more fulfilling and joyful when we're able to kind of accept the help and move through the change and give ourselves grace. That's the other thing that with lawyers, lawyers are so hard on themselves. That's one thing that I notice really across the board. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that perfectionism overachieving, it's so lined up, but so hard on themselves. And ultimately just give yourself a little grace. It's okay. It's okay to not be perfect and to not have it all together. And it's, there's no expectation of that. Mm-hmm. We don't have any expectation of that. Mm-hmm. And we yep. can help you to learn how to not have that for yourself. Right. Which is huge because that's, uh, I mean, I can only imagine that's a miserable way to live. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of the disease. Right. Right. The disease is to see yourself unrealistically and to overreact to the pain that comes and not deal with the pain to begin with. and. And and at that point, I, you know, I I don't blame people for wanting to intoxicate themselves right. out of that pain because it's awful, it's awful. Uh, but re- recovery is seeing yourself realistically and and saying this conversation that I've been having with myself for the past 10, 20 years it, it doesn't make sense, mm. and, and I need to find a new way to talk to myself. Yep. I think we all go through that. Like that's kind of the human experience to some degree. Like we all have ways of surviving Mm -hmm. that as we get older become probably ineffective and we can keep trying to force that square peg into the round hole over and over again, or Mm -hmm. we can reach that point where we choose to do something different Mm -hmm. because what we've been doing isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. It's a survival mechanism that's not helping me to survive anymore. Yeah. Or maybe I want more than surviving. I want to thrive. And that's, <laughs> right. it's not going to be this way. Right. Yeah. Well, Nikki, this has been amazing. Uh, we talked about how dark life can be uh, when we let imposter syndrome take us all the way to where it wants us to go. Uh, but you've also seen how it can be completely different and full of life and, and fulfillment. Um, and the LAP is free, professional, and confidential. It, what a gift it is uh, for our lawyers in North Carolina. Um, so thank you so much for being with us here today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so happy to um, be involved with New Waters and be a supporter of your growth and success. So thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming. Yeah.